So we are continuing our series in Nach Yomi, Sefer Shemuel Aleph. We are at Per Gimel, the third chapter of Shemuel Aleph. Uh, this series has been generously sponsored by Mr. Ariel Kalati in memory of Dorina Kalati, Zechonad Bacha. It's a great honor to have uh, her name associated with this learning, uh, someone that we revere as a teacher and leader of our community who was taken from us too soon. Also, it's sponsored by our uh, very dear Charlotte Chaverdi, who is a supporter of Torah throughout our community and uh, has sponsored in honor of or in zechut for the success of Yeshivat Devaskel, the website and all of the Torah that's being shared. And of course, she's a big part of that. And we thank her very much for those efforts. We begin in uh, Perek Gimel, as I said. And what we've seen in the first two chapters of Shmuel is we have seen first the uh, emergence of Shmuel onto the scene. We saw in the last chapter described to us the corruption of the Bnei Eli and the fact that they're on the way out, so to speak. And this um, and was even prophesied. A, a Navi comes and informs Elkanah that his sons will die. And that uh, because of what they've done, because of the disgrace that they've brought upon the Beit HaMikdash and upon Hashem, and because he placed their honor before the honor of God, which is the opposite of what Kohanim are supposed to do, and obviously the opposite of what Elkanah and Chana and Shmuel are doing, where they are placing God and Hashem, service of Hashem is the number one priority in their lives, and obviously enabling the Jewish people to serve Hashem as the number one priority in their lives, instead of what the Bnei Eli are doing, which is exactly the opposite of that. Not only are they disinterested, uninterested completely in service of Hashem for themselves, but they're also uh, not serving as leaders, not enabling Am Yisrael to come uh, closer to God. In fact, they are driving B'nai Israel away from Hashem with their conduct and the way that they have caused the Avodat Hashem to be perceived in the worst possible terms. So now we come really to a chapter that is a transitional chapter because we saw in the previous chapter that there's a constant contrast between Shmuel's ascending to greatness and the sons of Eli descending into, uh, into destruction. Here we see Shmuel finally coming into his own. The young man Shmuel was serving Hashem before Eli. Now we have to realize that Eli is a very complicated character because even though he doesn't properly rebuke his sons and therefore he is also punished, he's also held responsible for the way in which they tarnished the reputation of the Beit HaMikdash and therefore brought down the reputation and the greatness of Hashem in the eyes of the people. He himself is a Talmud Chacham, a tzaddik, he was one of the shoftim, he was a leader of his generation, and so being trained by him one-on-one is a great zechut for Shemuel, and he really does become great under the tutelage of Eli. Udvar Hashem en chazon nifratz, very famous saying that there was, it was very uncommon to have prophecy during this time. People knew what it was, they heard of the concept of nivuah, maybe once in, one in a million they would have prophecy, but it was yakar, yakar means precious, usually, but Yakar, because we know that whatever is in low supply is always more precious, so Yakar also means something which is a rarity. So it was very rare to have a Navi in those days, and Chazon Nifratz, it wasn't common to have any kind of prophetic visions. There, that The reason for mentioning that is because as we're going to see, when Shmuel Navi has his first prophecy, he doesn't even know what it is, as we're going to uh, read now. It was on that day, it doesn't tell us what day, but a particular day. 
Eli was sleeping in his place. They would keep guard over the Mishkan. Just like later on in the Beit HaMikdash, they had watches and they had different designated areas for Kohanim and Levim would spend the night guarding the Beit HaMikdash. We know it's not really guarding it from material damage, but it's actually guarding to show the Kavod of the Beit HaMikdash, show the Kavod that it's never left unattended, it's never left without people there. At that age, Eli had already become somewhat blind. He couldn't see so well. Um, the, uh, the, um, uh, so normally, Shmuel would be nearby, like the commentaries explain. Normally, Shmuel would be nearby, uh, to, uh, not too far away from, uh, from, El- from Eli, because sometimes he had to help him. That's, that's one interpretation. The, uh, uh, the the uh, it doesn't mean that he was totally blind, just that he had weakness of sight. And um, it says it, we can also interpret it, of course, um, like the Radak says. There doesn't seem to be a reason to mention Eli's lack of physical vision, but rather that he was lacking intellectual vision, meaning he didn't see things for what they were. He wasn't able to um, assess situations as thoroughly as he should have been. And it reminds me of what it says about Yitzchak, for example, Vatechena enav mereot, very similar language, Kehot, it says here, that Yitzchak's eyes faded in their ability to see. And the Chazal interpret that not just as a physical blindness, but that he was unable to see Esav for who he really was, because he had made so many compromises with the conduct of Esav, the wives of Esav bringing all kinds of foreign practices into his house. Once you start making compromises, once you start, uh, once you start uh, bending the rules and forcing yourself to accept things that you really shouldn't, so you already impair your vision, your ability to see things for what they are. And that's what the uh, that's what how the Radak suggests. I think um, that's what he's implying. In other words, when he says "ene live," that he didn't see things for how they were. He didn't have the clarity of vision that he once had. It reminds me, as I said, of the story of Yitzchak, where we have a similar thing. Here we have that Eli has made peace with the way his sons behave, more or less. He's not protesting it. He's not fighting against it. And that shows a certain um, dimming of vision. Like we say, he looked the other way, or we would say in English, he turned a blind eye to it, meaning he didn't want to see it. So that impairment of vision could be a spiritual one, not necessarily a physical one. But in any case, the lights that were on, this is not talking about the light of the Minoah, because the light of the Minoah burns all the time, throughout the night. But it means the lights that the Kohanim and Levim would use, it was still lit, had not extinguished yet. Ushmuel shochev, and Shmuel was lying down to go to sleep. It sounds, if you read the text superficially, that it means that he was sleeping in the Hechal, in the sanctuary where the Aaron was placed. But that's obviously not possible. Nobody's even allowed to go into that area except the Kohen Gadol uh, is allowed to go into the Kodesh HaKodeshim once a year. So it's not possible to imagine that, that Shmuel would be sleeping in there. But what it means is that he had a chamber that was adjacent to that, that was next to that. And that's why you look at the Tamim, if you look at the Tamim Mikra, the way that the Pasuk is punctuated, it says, Ushmuel Shochev. That Shmuel was lying down. Be'echal Hashem Elohim is describing around the area where his sleeping area was situated. Not that he was literally in there, but he was nearby. Hashem Shmuel And Hashem called to Shmuel in the night. In other words, Shmuel fell asleep. And in his sleep, he had a prophetic calling from God. But Shmuel has never had this before. So Vayavot El Eli. He wakes up in the middle of the night. Vayomer Hineni Kikaratali. He went to Eli and he said, Eli, you called me. You called me. I'm here. Eli said, you're having a dream or something. I didn't call you. Go back to bed. So he went back to bed. 
ויוסף השם קראו עוד שמואל, again God calls to שמואל, ויקום שמואל וילך אל אלי, once again שמואל comes to אלי and says, ויאמר הנני כי קראת לי. He says, didn't you call me? I heard you call me. ויאמר לא קראתי ואני שוב שכב. Again, אלי uh, tells him, go back to sleep, you're hallucinating, you're dreaming, whatever, in your dream, you think I'm calling you, I'm not calling you, go back to sleep. ושמואל, תרם ידע את השם. At that point, Shmuel did not yet know Hashem, meaning he had not yet experienced any prophecy. And as it said before, prophecy was very rare. It had not yet happened that the word of Hashem was revealed to Shmuel. This was his first nevuah. And the first time you experience something, you don't know how to identify it. When you have a lot of experience, you know when you're in that prophetic zone, when you're in the non-prophetic zone, when you're just dreaming, when you're receiving a communication, you have a sense of it. But Shmuel didn't have any basis on which to develop a sense, to differentiate between a real calling that he was hearing, uh, Eli call him, or a dream, or a prophecy. But Vayosef Hashem kero Shmuel bashlishit, by the third time already Hashem calls to Shmuel, Vayakom vayelech el Eli, Vayomer inini kikarat Eli, once again he presents himself to Eli and says, you called me. Vayaven Eli, ki Hashem kore lanar. At that moment, Eli understood that God was calling the child, meaning God was calling to Shmuel, and it wasn't just a dream, it wasn't that he was hallucinating, it was Hashem calling. Vayomer Eli el Shmuel, lech shechav. So he said to him, go, to, go back to sleep. If he calls to you again, Say, speak Hashem, for your servant is listening. In other words, the interesting thing here is that Eli himself, for all intents and purposes, as far as we can see, never had any prophetic vision himself. He never had that experience. It was such a rare experience. But he could identify it on a textbook level, like we would say today. You know, like sometimes a doctor can diagnose something that they've never seen before, but they know what it looks like based on what they learned in school, based on the textbook. So Eli is saying, this sounds like what Shmuel is experiencing here is some kind of a prophetic calling from Hashem. And if that's the case, so, uh, uh, so, the, uh, so then we can understand he was able to recognize, uh, you know, in the third person, what was happening to Shmuel, even as he had never experienced it directly himself. And so he said to Shmuel, say, speak Hashem, for your servant is listening. So Hashem again comes to Shmuel, and he stands there literally is what it means, but obviously that's a metaphor. It means that Hashem's presence manifested itself to Shmuel once again. And this time, Shmuel, Shmuel. And again, Hashem called to Shmuel twice, Shmuel, Shmuel, which we always say is Lashon Chiba. It's a, uh, it, it, whenever we see a double language, it always shows a, an intimacy between Hashem and the person. Like when Hashem calls to Abraham, uh, uh, he, he uses the name twice. It's the most famous example. But whenever Hashem uses someone's name twice, it's an indication of intimacy and closeness. Now you notice here that even though Eli told him, say, speak Hashem, because your servant is listening. Shmuel didn't say that. He just said, speak because your servant is listening. In other words, he wasn't 100% sure. Eli, from his perspective, saw very clearly that this was a prophetic vision, that Shmuel was having a prophetic dream, and therefore he told him to just embrace it for what it was and say, speak to me, Hashem. Shmuel wasn't 100% sure. He was a little bit less confident, a little bit more maybe humble and questioning of his own abilities at that stage. So he wasn't going to have the audacity to go come out and say, speak, Hashem, as if he knew for sure that it was Hashem. He said, speak, I'm listening. And of course it was Hashem. 
And we see Hashem then communicated, Vayomer Hashem as Shemuel, Anochi, I'm about to do something in, among the Jewish people. That anybody who hears it, their two ears are going to ring. But, meaning something terrible. A day is coming that I'm going to begin to fulfill what I told Eli would happen, which is his house is going to start to be destroyed. Not his physical house, meaning his family. And I told him already that I judge his house, his family forever, for the sin that he knew, from the fact that he knew that his sons were disgracing, it says, they were cursing themselves, what it really means they were cursing Hashem, in other words, they were disgracing God, they were creating a chilul Hashem, a terrible desecration of God's name, and Eli did not do enough to stop it, he was willing to look the other way, he turned a blind eye, as we said before, might be what is being hinted at in the Pasuk, uh, that is so similar to the Pasuk about Yitzchak turning a blind eye to Esav. We saw that Eli, for all of his goodness, for all of his greatness, he didn't stand up against his sons. He kind of let it go. He kind of tried to take a softer approach than really was warranted under the circumstances. And therefore, he is held responsible and accountable for the terrible outcome of his son's actions. He didn't properly rebuke them and intervene. This is a very important pasuk. It says, therefore, I swore to the house of Eli, or really concerning the house of Eli, that im yitkaper means that it will not, that the sin of the house of Eli will not be atoned for bezevach uvmincha with a burnt with a uh, an animal offering or a flower offering ad olam forever. There's no way that it will ever be atoned for through any kind of a sacrifice. Now, what's very interesting here is that it specifies that. And of course, Chazal come along and say that it's true that it couldn't be atoned for with a korban, with a sacrifice. But it could be atoned for with learning of Torah and gmilut chasadim, or with tefillah, with prayer from the sons of Eli. It could have been uh, atoned for. What does it show you? What are the Chazal pointing out? They're saying, why did the Pasuk, why did the Pasuk specify that it will not be atoned for with sacrifices? Because if you think about it, the, the whole thing that they distorted was the relationship with the sacrifices. They saw the sacrifices as something that pe- they presented the sacrifices to the people in a distorted way, in a, in a way that disgraced God. And simply bringing more sacrifices, doing more of the same, is not going to change the, uh, the, the situation. It's not going to yield a different outcome because they've already tarnished the way that sacrifices are seen. They relate to the sacrifices basically as a gift the person has to give to God. And the Kohen, on, because he does the service of helping the person give the gift to God and make God happy, therefore he gets the payment of the meat. In other words, that was how they presented it. They presented it as a business transaction. Like, I am the, I am the uh, you know, the, I get a finder's fee. You came here, I'm the Kohen. You need to give this obligation to God, otherwise he's going to punish you or whatever people believed. And I'm going to take this korban, I get the meat because that's the payment I get. That's my percentage because I was your agent in appeasing God and bringing God a gift. That was how they presented the korbanot to the people. In other words, they gave them a distorted and a, and a, a, a disgraceful understanding of what the korbanot were. As I mentioned in the last shiur, instead of teaching the people to rise above the material, to rise above 
the physical, to recognize that the pleasures of the flesh were subordinate to the higher purpose of serving God, they gave exactly the opposite impression, that you give God a sacrifice, you give the Kohanim uh, uh, the meat, that's really what it's all about, and then you get to have blessing, and you get to have protection, and you get to have all the material uh, gifts that God is going to grant you because you fulfilled your obligation. It's all about the material realm. And that's why you can't use the broken tool to, uh, uh, in order to fix the situation. You have to try something different. And that's why the rabbis are saying, if you learn Torah, or if you, or if you do chesed, or if you, uh, if you pray, then you could have a different outcome. In other words, it's not that the fate is sealed of the Bnei Eli. It's not that Hashem is saying they have no way out. Hashem never really says anything like that. He always leaves the door open. What does the door open? They can't keep doing the same thing they've been doing all along and expect a different result. But what they could do is learn. Because when you learn, you change your idea, you change your understanding of what is true, and, you, and differentiate that from what is false, what is real and what is imaginary, what is good and what is evil. In other words, you're changing yourself. When you learn, you're changing your inner sense of reality. Your relationship to what is true is transformed, and therefore the way that you respond to and orient yourself to the world and to Hashem can be fundamentally changed as a result of learning. That's why it says, if a person tells you, Lo matati al tamen, if a person tells you, oh, I learned, but it was easy, it was very easy, don't believe him. If he tells you, matati tamen, only if he tells you it worked hard and he found, meaning he worked hard and he gained knowledge, then you can believe him. Why? Because if a person didn't exert himself or herself in learning, that means they didn't really change. Because if you're introduced, if a new idea that really should be changing your perspective, that really should be moving you in a different direction is introduced to you, so there should be a resistance. It shouldn't be so easy to go along with a totally new idea that, ha- that radically uh, uh, parts from the way that you thought all along. And when you're learning to why, you're supposed to be discovering new ideas, not just reaffirming, finding confirmation for what you already believe. You're supposed to be finding new ideas and making new discoveries, and these new discoveries should have an impact on you and shouldn't be so easy to accept or embrace precisely because they are running against what you would typically think. So if the Bnei Eli actually engaged in learning of Torah and discovered the beauty of Torah and therefore became proper vehicles of exemplifying values of Torah to the people, they could be saved. Or if they did Gmilut Chasadim. Why Gmilut Chasadim? Gmilut Chasadim and Tzedakah are, again, ways, that, things that a person does that have an inherent value in the development of the person. Because to give is by definition, obviously, not to take. In other words, what were they doing? They were selfish. They were self-centered. In their, their perspective on the world was built around their own ego and their own desire for pleasure and satisfaction, gratification. That's what it was built around. One way of breaking that is through new ideas. Another way of breaking it is through action, by doing chesed, by instead of taking, giving. That's why the only thing that the Navi ever says, it's very famously, the only thing that the Navi ever says, test Hashem on this, is giving tzedakah. Why? Because that's one thing that there's an objective uh, reality to it. The person took of their own resources and gave it. They gave it. They gave it to somebody else. It doesn't matter, uh, uh, you know, that says something objectively that there's something more important than me possessing the money. And there's something that, or if I'm giving tzedakah to a poor person, this person's needs 
are significant enough, they're as significant as my needs. So I'm going to take from my resources and give to them. Or this cause is more important than my possession of this money. So I'm going to give this money. That makes an objective statement that there's something higher than yourself. There's something more important than your own um, possession of and amassing of wealth. That's why it's so significant. Tefillah, of course, is inner development. It's taking the ideas of Torah and applying them to yourself. It's standing before God. And when you have that perspective of standing before God, it means you're looking at yourself through a different lens. But of course, that lens is only as good as your knowledge of God and your knowledge of Torah. And that's why it says if a person doesn't learn Torah, their prayer will be an abomination because they don't have a proper knowledge of Hashem to be able to apply um, God's wisdom to their life. They have to be able to stand before Hashem and know what that means and then look at their own life and assess it and evaluate it and direct it in accordance with that. Like Chana did. Chana's the ultimate example of somebody who did that, who transformed her life in line with a new perception of reality. If the Bnei Eli would do that, then they could be, uh, then they could be saved. Their Gzardin, their, their judgment could have been lifted. That are the three things, either through learning, through prayer, or through Gemilut Chasadin, because all of these require a person to turn outward, to open up, and to perceive a reality that they didn't perceive before, to fundamentally and truly change, not just to do more of the same thing they were doing before. And, uh, <clears throat> and so uh, that's what the Chazal are teaching us, that if the Bnei Eli had become different people through real teshuvah, through real insight, real development, they could have been saved. went back to sleep. He was in charge of opening the doors in the morning for the Beit He was afraid to tell Eli what he heard, obvious for obvious reasons, because it's very painful. It's about the downfall of the sons of Eli. Eli knew that Shmuel received a prophetic vision. He said, "Shmuel, my son." Shmuel said, "Here I am." Same language that he uses in speaking to Hashem. He uses in speaking to Eli because Eli was his teacher. Eli was the one from whom he learned all that he knew. What was it that he spoke of to you? Meaning Hashem spoke of you. Don't hide it from me. This is a way, this is a language that we find in Tanakh. We don't find it in Chumash. We find it in the, in the Navi, especially the earlier books of the Navi. That a person will say, Ko li Elohim Yosef, or Ko Elohim Yosef, which means, so may Hashem do to me, and so may He do more. Or so may Hashem do to you, and so may He do more. Meaning, if I'm not telling the truth, or if I don't do what I'm going to say I'm going to do, so may Hashem do to me something bad. Or you're saying to the other person, if you don't reveal it to me, so may Hashem do to you, and so should He do more. Meaning that Hashem should take it out on you if you don't tell me the truth, if you don't reveal to me the... Uh, uh, what you received in the message. I want to know everything that he told you. So in other words, he really wanted to know what Shmuel received as his first prophecy. Shmuel told him everything. He didn't hide anything. And so what do you expect to happen? What would somebody like Hanad do in this case? What would somebody like Elkanad do? What would somebody like Shmuel do if they heard that message? Because there's a ray of light in that message, especially the way that the rabbis interpret it. The ray of light is if you change yourself in a fundamental way through real transformative change, then you can still save yourself from this disaster. That was the silver lining. Yes, disaster is coming, but if you genuinely change, transform yourself, reinvent yourself through learning, through tefillah, through chesed, you could see a different outcome. That's what I would have read from it. That's what you would have read from it. That's what Shmuel would have read from. We learned from Chana that's, that's what we should hear. We should be looking for 
the opportunity to change ourselves so as to receive a greater blessing or a better outcome. But what does he say? He says, Vayomar Hashemu Hatov He is Hashem. What is good in his eyes, he will do. In other words, he resigns himself to the fate that has been decreed upon him. Exactly not what Chana would have done, not what Elkanah seemingly would have done, although in the beginning maybe it looked like he was leaning in that direction, but in the end not. Not what somebody like Shmuel would have done. But saying, look, that's the way it is, it is what it is, I accept my fate. Vaigdal Shmuel, and because of this Shmuel became greater and greater, Never did Shmuel give a prophecy that didn't come true. From Dan to Beersheba, north to south, everybody knew that Shmuel was a trustworthy prophet of Hashem. Hashem continued to reveal himself in Shiloh. Because Hashem was revealing himself to Shmuel with the word of Hashem continuously. In other words, Shmuel now is rising up. There's not going to be a void of leadership when the sons of Eli are taken out of the picture. When the house of Eli ultimately falls, there's not going to be a void of leadership because Shmuel has already been established as the religious leader, the religious authority of Israel. And as we saw in the beginning, from the very outset, there was already controversy. Who is this kid? He's coming in. He's edging in on our territory. Why is he here? He's not a Kohen. He's not part of the family. But this, that was a challenge already. But we also saw the contrast that Shmuel was beloved in the eyes of Hashem and in the eyes of people because he was a genuine servant of God. And the Bnei Eli, did, well, nobody liked them. Hashem was not... Uh, they did not find favor in the eyes of God and certainly not in the eyes of people either from the way that they were treating those who came to the Bet HaMikdash for uh, some kind of religious uh, inspiration that was definitely wanting. There was no religious inspiration to be had. So what do we see? We see that Shmuel is ri- was rising up already and this is the ultimate because now Shmuel's become a Navi and all of Israel knows he's a Navi. He's not just a trainee under Eli. He's now someone with a direct relationship with Hashem who has the Devar Hashem revealed to him that nobody else in Shiloh has. None of the Kohanim ha- can claim that. Eli cannot claim that. None of the Bnei Eli can claim that. He has, and everyone sees that again and again his prophecies come true, which means that he's established his religious authority independently of the Kohanim, independently of even any kind of a, uh, a-, a-, any kind of a uh, confirmation or any kind of an endorsement by the Kohanim. He doesn't need it because he has the direct line, so to speak, to HaKadosh Baruch Hu that he's representing. And so this establishes Shmuel now, and he's even to the point that he is the one to deliver the message. We already saw that according to the Chazal, it was Elkanah who initially delivered the message to Eli what was going to happen in the future. Now Shmuel himself receives it as a prophecy. Um... And he is the one who is actually going to catch the falling uh, ball, so to speak. When, uh, when Bnei Eli are eliminated, he's going to be the one who takes over. So he delivers the message. And it's, I, and it's uh, actually the very fact that he delivers messages of Devar Hashem, of the word of Hashem, is itself what gives him the credibility and the authority to be the new religious leader of Israel. It's not going to be based on heredit- like hereditary status and kohanim and sacrifices. It's going to be based on knowledge of God. And it's going to be building from the ground up again under the leadership of Shmuel, which is now universally recognized, doesn't require any endorsement or acceptance by the kohanim or anybody else. So we're going to see, Bezad Hashem, how this plays out in the upcoming chapters, how the downfall of the Bnei Eli ultimately occurs and what it shows us about how the Bnei Eli were uh, functioning within the Jewish people. And then, of course, we will see Shmuel rise up 
to uh, accept the mantle of leadership. He doesn't even have to accept it. He's already received it to continue in his efforts to uh, guide the Jewish people along the proper path of Hashem. So, Bezad Hashem, we will continue tomorrow our study of Sefer Shemuel.